podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to The Chels with me, Andy Saunders, and this very special episode during International Week when we don't have any games to talk about. So we thought we would do something a little bit different and talk to somebody that uh, that, that holds a special place and in a lot of uh, Chelsea fans' hearts, inclu- including mine. Um, I'm delighted to say that I'm joined today by Pat Nevin. Uh, Pat, welcome to the show. It's Great to be here. It's fantastic, uh, fantastic to be anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. Um, I have been immersing myself in your life uh, for the last couple of days uh, in the form of your new book, your memoir called The Accidental Footballer, uh, which uh, which is now out in, in all good bookshops and presumably some bad ones as well. Uh, so do go out and get it. It's a, it's a really interesting book. I have to say, first of all, I'm not a big fan of football memoirs normally. They normally fairly formulaic and uh, and on brand. Your one's got a real joie de vivre about it. It's got some real personality. And I think mainly because cause you actually wrote it, Pat, right? Yeah, number one, uh, A, yes, I did write it. So if you don't like it, I can't blame anybody else at all. I have to take the rap for that one. Um, but two, I don't, I'm not a big fan of football books either, I'll be honest with you. I've, I've read, I've had to read a few for a variety of reasons. And the vast majority of them are, you know, if you're interested in that sort of thing, um, fine. But, you know, the, the whole thing about just talking about the goals you scored and all that sort of stuff didn't really hold any great interest for me. And if it didn't hold any great interest for me, it's not going to hold a great interest for others. I do, within the book, um, talk about important things that happened at various clubs that I was at um, and go into some detail in them. Um, but I'm happy to say it doesn't feel like the normal f- football memoir because... I'd be kind of disappointed <laughs> if it did. Yeah. Um, There's been nice. a few good ones, isn't it? I, I mean, I, I really like, for yeah. example, I like Tony Cascarino's one. I thought that was very good. You know, I don't know if you read that one. That, yes. That, that, that had a, a real authenticity about it. But the ones that are sort of ghost-written, cut-and-paste ones, frankly, you know, I can do I, I can do without, you know. Um, but, you know, I, what was interesting about your book as well, in the, in the prologue, you talk about the meeting with the the marketing guy who wants to wants you to write in a certain style and write about certain things, and it obviously it obviously uh, impassions you in some way to uh, to react against it, and it's uh, it, it kind of sets the book up in a way uh, for 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 what for what we're going to expect, which is something that's written from the heart, from you know from yourself, and and not along any kind of genre formulaic lines. Funny you should mention that in the prologue. Um, I'd written the entire book and uh, published. I said, you've not done a prologue yet. Right. I went, what? So I thought, well, it's kind of obvious. I'll just tell you why I wrote it or part of the reason why I wrote it. Um, but the amount of journalists, writers, and people yourself who've worked in various areas in media who've said things like they punched the, the sky when they read that piece because it was such a problem that a lot of people have at the moment which is basically, you know, there's a lot of faceless marketing people within massive organisations. They're not giving you art. What mm. they're giving you is clickbait. And, mm. uh, I know, there's a place for that in the world. Uh, and I, But it just kind of sickens me. And I'm always a, a wee bit saddened that, you know, people are fed this nonsense. Also, I mean, that doesn't, again, I've got this big battle with them and never to sound too earnest. Because I'm not, you know. That's a real theme throughout the book, yeah, isn't it? it? Is. You, you quote, did you? Who did you quote? PJ O'Rourke at one point in the book. Yeah, yeah Ernest, exactly. What, what's the line? It's a great line. I can't remember. Ernest is just stupidity going to college, <laughs> which that. is a great line. And you're, you're going to use it, aren't you? It's <laughs> because there's such meaning in it as well. And did you have to really check yourself throughout the book about the bit? Because you are. I mean, you are. Earnest. I mean, you yeah, are someone who thinks thing, about like. things and you know and cogitates on things and reflects on things. I mean, that's kind of earnest, isn't it? Really, in a good way, not in a pejorative way. The problem is trying to get uh, an earnest feeling across, but without being boring and dull and self-satisfied. You know, the, the, there can be an earnestness and a belief, but also have a laugh around it. And I would suggest I've I've tackled some pretty weighty issues within the book, and I could have done that in a incredibly earnest way the whole way through, but I didn't because I wasn't interested in doing that way. That's been done by many people and I don't really feel that way. So a lot of the things I tackle, 
you know, you know, there's lots of football, there's music, etc. You, you can take, decide what bits to talk about, but specifically, you know, stuff like, about homophobia, racism, etc. But I'll tell you some funny stuff about both of those subjects right in the middle of it. Absolutely, <laughs> Absolutely. You, and you, you know. do, and, and and I'll come on to that because I think there's some some really interesting stuff around that. And I, you know, I, I, what, first of all, what's your writing process? Are you are you disciplined? I mean, you say in the book that you'd bashed out ten thousand words straight away. Um, were you somebody that, like, you know, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a, a literary author would go down to a shed in the forest and write for five hours a day, or are you disciplined, or did you just write when you felt like it? Well, how long did the book take to write? Three weeks. Three weeks? Okay. That's usually the reaction I get. Right. No, I had 120,000 words in just over three weeks. I just got lost. I loved it. Every right. single. It's one of those things where if I was having dinner, I was thinking, I want to get back down to the computer and start writing again because there's right. so many things I wanted to write about. Eventually, and what's unusual about it is I didn't go to a publisher. I didn't do any of that stuff. I just wrote it. And then when I was finished, I think, right, I wonder if anyone wants to read this. Um, and eventually got it in front of a nose, in the nose of a publisher and uh, who kindly says, oh, you can write. Uh, thank you. Which is the loveliest thing anybody can say to you as a publisher. And they liked it, or he liked it. And it was a kind of moment of, he said, but, you know, I'd actually written about, and actually got to about 140, 145,000 words, which is too long for a book of this size. So I had to take quite a bit out. Um, but he said, this doesn't happen. People don't just don't turn up with almost the finished article. Right. He helped me edit a couple of bits out and I took some bits out myself. How are you about that? Because throughout the book, you are famously stubborn, I think, for one word, about people telling you what to do and how you're going to do it and, you know, treating you like a child, you say, and all that kind of, you, you know, I'm going to get back on the train, I'm going to go back to Scotland. I mean, that's a, a you know, that's a theme throughout the book is you're, you know, I'm going to do it my way or the highway. How, how was the editing process? Somebody coming in and saying, was it was it collaborative or did they say, look, this is the way we do it and you have to do it like this? No, it's, a, again, a brilliant question because I hadn't worked with an editor before. And uh, if I hadn't had the exact correct editor, then that would have been impossible. But um, I, I've never had an agent, but for this, I, I, I asked a friend of mine, Vivian, and she said, this is the guy to work with. Um, because he was super intelligent. And he didn't say, do this, do that, do the next thing. He said, what do you think of? And I would say, I don't agree with you. And this is why. And he would say, fine, cool. And then sometimes we'd say, not sure about that, but tone's not quite right. You think you should rewrite it. And I would think because he's an intelligent guy, I got it. Because of he was top, he is fabulous, fabulous within the industry. He, I don't think he, he in fact, he didn't rewrite a word. He just said, look, rethink that. Just rethink the way that was one chapter. He said, you've written that like a journalist. It's very good journalism. But just go out and write it like yourself. So he helped you navigate, really. Is he was a navigator? Yeah, and it was a couple of chapters which were you know chopped about. Just say, look, those two could make one chapter, you know, instead of two. And there was a couple of the biggest things where he said, I wrote um, a couple of thousand, three thousand, four thousand words, whatever, on the PFA, my work with the PFA, and what the PFA does. And he says it's lovely, it's wonderful, and there's lots of interesting stuff in that. No, no one's interested. <laughs> right, right. That, that must have been quite brutal to hear and that was and I mean yeah for what I was trying to explain to people was if you work, work in an industry I eventually became chairman of PFA to say look this is what it's like inside it but you don't need to do that with figures about the you know the, the pension position no, right okay <laughs> so when you're dealing with somebody who's got that and it's all about feel it really is all about feel at that point in time so I, I was unbelievably lucky um, that I got Jake. Um, to, and we, to be honest, it was done, we, we didn't really meet through it because it was the middle of the COVID, the worst period. So it was just sending, you know, messages to each other. Um, and it was it was done very, very quickly. Um, but what was odd was you asked about the methodology. So I wrote it, gave it in. But what I hadn't told them I was writing. I also didn't tell them that I didn't stop writing. I just kept going. So by the time this book's been out, part two's finished too. Oh, <laughs> oh there's a part two coming. Yeah. Excellent. So part two's finished too, because this book only takes me up until I was 26. So, um, and then the, the stuff that comes after it re- gets mega weird. Um, right. And this is weird enough as it is. So, 
And I kind of loved, I, I just loved doing it. I really loved doing it. And I kind of hope it doesn't come across as um, you love doing it because you love writing about yourself and talking about yourself. Does this maybe inspired you to write a novel or to, you know, write some family history or, you know, to go and write other... Because you've, you've collaborate, collab, collaborated on books before about mental health and various other things. I know that you, you've, you've done some interesting, some work on that sort of thing. Is it, are you thinking, I could be a writer now? Like, well, the, the third book's about... Um, <laughs> part three is about travel, is a travelogue. Okay. So, you know, so I've got... It was always actually considered as a trilogy anyway so i knew kind of well, start, as soon as i started writing it, I, I knew that this would be three books whether three books will ever be published or not who knows travel figures large in this book doesn't it I, there's there's some really interesting I, piece i read last night about when you went to bulgaria and they arranged the choir to sing for you was i, I just found an astonishing maybe you could just quickly tell that story because it's just yeah, a great example of going behind the iron curtain and walking out the hotel to discover it and a guy coming up to you and don't know him and an amazing thing happens you know yeah when i go anywhere in the world and before i was playing professional football i just go and look and go and see and go and see if you can have adventures not look them out just keep your eyes open so whether i'm in iraq which was fun with chelsea or being kept waiting by Saddam Hussein. Yeah, exactly. It's quite good, though. <laughs> um, or as my life has just now, which is travelling around the world for the last 25 years covering football, I just don't go and sit in a bar and then go to a hotel, go to the game and come home. I go and see things, go and do things. Anyway, in Bulgaria, I walked out of the hotel. I was there with Scotland playing against Bulgaria. And um, there's a chap standing there in a the hotel for you saying, I, you are Mr. Nevin, which in those days was amazing. Because that's Bulgaria, it's behind Iron Curtain. I was desperate to see more, and uh, he just said to me, "Look, um, I know, I know you like Bulgarian folk music." To which the rest of the team turned around and go, "What?" <laughs> and of course, <laughs> you and I would know this is 4AD, this is Vadabulga stuff that John Peel had played a lot, and it is beautiful. And I said, "Yeah," and he goes, "Well, come with me," and, and it went to his house where he had the choir there, amazing, and fully dressed. And sang to me, uh, and it's an extraordinary thing to have. You know, you know, I've been very lucky a number of times in my life. I've been in studio with um, Robin Guthrie, just him noodling in his guitar, which is one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard in my life. Of, of the Cocteau Twins, which yeah. is you know some you know a band you eulogise about. Absolutely, in the book. and a yeah. guy called Vinnie Riley, who's a mm. great friend of mine. Just, the just going, hang, and... yeah, hanging about with Vinnie. But I went over to to there, but the part of it was that. So I got that great great thing of me seeing him, seeing a little bit behind Iron Curtain, going to his house, hearing the choir singing, but also I found out a little bit more about life and behind the Iron Curtain, because, you know, in those days, you know, old-fashioned lefty, I was, you know, hey, I wasn't big on communism, but I just thought, I wonder what it's like. And uh, if ever I needed the scales taken from my eyes, it was taking a direct trip to Sophia. Because uh, he explained to me why the, the entirety of the system was an absolute shambles, didn't work. It was a hellhole to live in. Um, and that was done by means of him showing me a shop that sold things, but I couldn't tell what they were. And what it was, quite simply, is they were selling televisions, but you had to buy them valve by valve. Amazing. <laughs> it's mental. It's so, amazing. Whereas the rest of the lads, and this is maybe the, the point about your question, the rest of the lads, they're in the hotel bar, you know, and I'm thinking, or they weren't, they're probably in the bed, like the manager told them, they'd be preparing for the game the next day. But I'm thinking, no, I'm going to go for a walk, I'm going to see the place, I'm going to understand the culture. Um, and I, I suppose that was the bits that maybe I enjoyed writing most about this book, was saying when I went to places, I, I looked at people, I listened to people, I tried to understand people and had the other adventure or two. <laughs> Did it, did it frustrate you? I mean, again, you know, I want to come back and talk about your teammates and how you were perceived and, you know, this, this idea that you were the outsider. But did it frustrate you that your teammates were so close-minded about this stuff? Did you, did, it, did, it, did you feel, what did you feel, sorry for them or cross with them? How did you feel? None of the above. What right. I felt is I wanted to share. I wanted to say, look, guys, you should listen to this. And sometimes I got through. You know, some of the lads would listen to some of the music that I would, bring on the team coach. I used to go and splice together videos of all the 
some music shows that I recorded on a VHS, yes, that long ago. And I would spice them because I had two video recorders, so I cut them together. Um, so, and I, so I play music to them or, you know, I try to suggest things to go, things to listen to. And I would say one time in a hundred, I would get a decent reaction. To be fair, the best reaction is when they wound me up and I was just winding them up back. Yeah, and right, right. They liked the fact that I was the outsider weirdo, but I wasn't cowed by that. I would always just be me to them. And everyone always thinks, oh, well, you must have, it must be horrible. You must have been bullied. And no, absolutely not. They tried to do what happens in any organization or group of people where, you know, strong characters try to push their strength and their power. They couldn't get through it. I mean, they were wasting their time. Well, there's a great moment, isn't it, when you're away with Scotland and and you're at the table with some Scottish legends, mm. Kenny Dalgleish, and they're trying to do that. They're trying to alpha dog you. Exactly. And as you and Brian McClare, I think, who were rooming, you were the new boys, and you gave us as much as you gave us as good as you got and yeah. they got quite upset about it and there's the, the sort of the next scene is you're in your room kind of laughing your heads off about <laughs> it and going did we really do that to Kenny Dalgleish you know and it's I get the sense that this was a you know well it, well, it was a bit of a challenge for you to kind of stand up to these to the big dogs I could have written that piece 20 times over but 20 different situations but that's a good example it's a, a perfectly good example of you need to stand up um, and as I suppose if I learned, I learned many things for being a footballer. One of them is the outsider thing of still be yourself and you'll be more respected. And by the way, you can survive anywhere as long as you believe in yourself and believe in what you believe in and you're strong and you don't bend to this. And the other thing is just to, to say to people, you know, there are people out there that will push and bully, you know, and there are a number of ways of dealing with it. And you, if you do bend over too often or in my case, ever, <laughs> you would hate yourself for it. And I think it comes from a number of things, family background, all that sort of stuff. But it also comes from actually playing football. Now, I had no big ego off the field. But put me on a pitch with a ball and put me up against anybody, and I think I can do it. And I, 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 it's the weirdest thing. It's just such a wild dichotomy. It doesn't make sense. I'd be quiet and pleasant, nice and chat and all that. But put me on that football field and put me against the best player in the world in that position, I still think I'm better than you. But do, I wouldn't say that to you a, off the pitch. And I wouldn't feel that. No, of course. You stick me on a field. Course. And, and I would and, feel that. And that comes across very clearly, the humility. And there's always a, you know, there, there's throughout the book, there are times when you take people to task. And then you always end up saying, "But they're quite a nice guy," and I kind of, I kind of understood them, and I liked them off the pit, and all this kind of stuff. You're always trying to find the best in people, I think, you know. And 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 I think you, I get the sense that you agonised over certain things that you wrote, and you thought, "Is this fair? Should I do that?" There's a lot, for example, I don't know how comfortable you're talking about. I presume it's the you are. There's a lot about David Speedy in there that it seems to have been a very tricky relationship from your time at Chelsea you know the, he comes up a lot at certain points and it's usually negative and there is a very poignant moment where you share a room with him in Scotland and he says it's all about me and my family and I don't care about anybody else and you finish the chapter by going I sort of understood him a bit more after that you know and it's but it's 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 actually a very I thought a very kind way to end that chapter because he clearly made your life unpleasant at you know certain times absolutely the case um but it wasn't me being, maybe it's kind of, it's just my personality, is that? But it's also something my dad told me, something I've read over the years. If you sit in your own little silo and refuse to learn about anything else, you're as ignorant as anyone else. The, the true person, the person who truly wants to learn, listens. And listens to completely different viewpoints. And doesn't just listen and hear the words and then give your, that's just pathetic, in my point of view. Listen, take on board, try to fully understand not just the argument, but why they have the argument. I mean, it's, it's, it's an old cliche, but you know, before you've walked, before you say something about the person, try walking a mile in their shoes. The most sort of uh, uh, clearest moment of that is when you go and meet two members of the National Front. 
um, in the Fulham Road. This is all following some of the incidents with with Paul Cannaville, you know, and that's a very famous story about Paul, how Paul was uh, racially abused by his own fans, particularly at a Crystal Palace match. And you, after the game, stood up and said some things uh, in support of Paul, a lot of things in support of Paul, and, and called out the Chelsea fans who did that. And there's a lot in the book about your relationship with the Chelsea fans and the majority of Chelsea fans you have a, a really strong bond with. But there was a point in in at time where where it was an issue uh, amongst some fans and you went and met two members of the National Front to hear their point of view that must have been a very interesting moment for you A, to hear their point of view yes uh, but also together yeah so like, that's what I mean to yeah. B, yeah. give them my point of view as well <laughs> I'll be up front there um, no I, I thought it was important to do that um, don't, don't never argue from a position of ignorance I mean I think that's a I think that's just a simple truism you should never argue from a point of ignorance I spend a lot of my life as I've got older, and maybe I had quite an old head and young shoulders uh, back then as well. Uh, that we all have some naivety when we're young, but you know, I'd grown up with that earnestness, and also read hugely as well. And I just thought, well, you know, you must learn as much as you can because if you're missing something, now I'll be honest with you, I'm not the same person I was when I was twenty. You know, I've, I've adapted my ideas, my thoughts, my considerations. If you're still the same person as you're 20, you're a close book and you have not learned. You must learn. Uh, and you must accept that the world can adapt and you can adapt with it. And you can learn more because it's a very arrogant person who thinks they know everything and never changes. Mm. That person's wrong. Mm. So, yeah, that's, that was mm. the reasoning for doing it. Um, I kind of wanted also to make it very, very clear to people that, you know, this is not something I'm going to duck out of. This is not something I'm going to stop doing. If you're going to bring your politics um, to my workplace, I will bring my politics to your work, my workplace as well. This is, this is, if you expect me to be quiet about it, which sounds odd now, but at the time, footballers didn't speak up. They didn't. None of them did. And I, I don't blame them for it. It just wasn't a done thing. But they were quite shocked that I was calling them out. That sort of phraseology wouldn't have been used then, but, you know, that's that's what it would be phrased as now. And I said, no, I don't care. You're bringing it there. Okay, that's the rules of the game. I'll bring mine and I'll tell you what I think. Um, and it kind of, it was a bit of an eye-opener for them. I think, I hope their eyes were opened more than me. And I'll go to a quick story. I met somebody two weeks ago, walking up, and he knows who he is, and he might be listening, and he's walking up towards Stanford Bridge. And uh, I could tell by clothes he was wearing, a couple of other things about him that in the past he had been with that group or associated with, you know, that sort of thing. And we talked for five or ten minutes. And after it, he said, you know, I was I was one of them, you know, that changed. And I said, good. And I didn't ask him. I suspect it wasn't me that changed them. But hopefully it was people like me that were talking, that were saying these things. Um, and that's all you can do. Because if that education... Yeah, I didn't expect those National Front people to walk out the next day and suddenly become leaders of the Christian Democrat Party, you know. <laughs> what I expected was them to think and for a seat to be put in there. And hopefully that would lead to, you know, a better society. And that is all you can do. It's just education as well. Well, education again is another theme of the book, isn't it? It's you know, it's almost the the you know the 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 the, the, the narrative arc, isn't it, about education? The accidental footballer. I wanted to complete my degree. I wanted to kind of pursue my intellectual pursuits. Football was always a byproduct. It was always something I did for fun. Really want to be a footballer. That's kind of what went all the way through the book. But you know that you talk, um, you know, about how much I want to talk about your dad yeah. is what I want to talk about because he's such an interesting character in the book. And he, he, you know, he's been there very early helping you, you know, with the drills. He's, you know, working really hard and then managing football teams and just seems like such a great guy and, and, and so supportive of you and does the 800 mile round trips to see you play and does the shift afterwards I mean that must be he must have been an incredible role model for you phenomenal and then you add on top of that he had five other kids as well <laughs> six of us yeah, you know exactly, so yeah. as dedicated to his all um, he, he was a fabulous man and you know Keena was a it's hard, I wouldn't say he, hero's not the right word but I admired him so much and I learned so much and my last words to my dad as he died were thanks for teaching me how to be a father you know, and they were, they, were, they were deep men and felt that I had to... And he wasn't doing anything other than that. He was just giving all his love and time and consideration to us as kids. 
but not done in a kind of, you know, overshowy way, you know, the modern way. It was done in a camp. Cool. This is matter of fact. This is what we do. We help. We, we help our children. We do our best for them, and we support them. Never push. Never push. Ever. It's never happened. You just support. If you need it, if you fancy it, I'm there. Um, and it was an he was an extraordinary individual for that, um, and it stayed. And one of the real joys of my life, and I've been very fortunate. And it's I'm going a slight sidestep at the moment. One of the things about books, there's not that many downsides. It's not that depressing a thing, is it, really? There are tough times. But a lot of the books, somebody, read, I've written, uh, <laughs> reading Shuggy Bain at the moment, right? <laughs> That's a great Track book. A big, I loved it. How, how close to home is it? Well, we lived about 300 yards away from each other. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, place, it, right? It, it, it's uh, that book. I mean, I don't know if anybody's read that book. Shuggy Bain. It was the Booker yeah. Prize winner this year. It's uh, this year or last year. It was. Um, it's a hammer blow of a book. I mean, it took me about two weeks to recover well, after reading it. I have to say. Hopefully, mine's is almost an antidote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's the same. Amazing. Because yeah, because you are you 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 start off in mm-hmm. Easter House, which is you, you describe it as a. I mean, you describe it as a yeah. slum, you know, or other yes, people described it as a slum, you know, and then you were moved out to uh, Bar Lanark, um, you know, on the edge of the city with the fields, which is but, again, but both like of them are Shuggy actually Bain, only isn't? about they're only a road away from each other. Balano's just across wow. the road. So we, we didn't go far from that. We were still in the same place, but a little bit better. But the, the, yeah. the point I was making about the Shuggy Bain thing is that a lot of books just now want to, they really want to have the dark stuff at you. And that's kind of what sells. And, and do you know what? I could, I could easily have twisted it that way, but it's just not the life I led. And I thought, no, forget it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm just going to be straight and say this is the joys of it. And the reason why there were those joys, because unlike Shuggy Bain, I had fantastic parents. You know, I have yeah. amazing backing with family and things like that. And that is the joy that I would try to explain to people. It's where you're brought up, you can come out of it and change. And you don't want to get out of it. You just want to survive it. And also you want to make the best of yourself. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But don't have help if you've got supportive parents. Um, you don't have help if you've got brothers and sisters around you that want to push that, be it education, be it sport, be it just consideration of you. Um, and I wanted to put that across in the book as much as possible and tell those stories about, and just the honesty about my dad. And there's a great, for any Chelsea fans, um, my dad used to get trained down in, in the Saturday morning, get 5am, get the train down, get into Stanford Bridge about an hour before the game. Obviously I couldn't see him play the game, but he'd have to go before the end of the game and be up on that train and get back up. Sometimes he would miss it and he'd have to get the night train, you know. Always met Chelsea fans on it. He made some great friends and great people through that. And for all the negativity people used to say about Chelsea fans at the time, it was only a small minority behaved like that. And what always underlined to me is that my dad would then phone me the next day and say, I met these Chelsea fans and they're doing what I'm doing. They're coming all the way from Scotland. This is, you know, people were all over the world. You know, football fans are like that. Chelsea fans, pretty specifically, the way they travelled for their team. But they helped my dad as well. And it was just this lovely circle of friendship and kindredness that we actually got. And I think it kind of oozed out of my dad and he drew people towards himself. So it was a, it was a, he was a joy to write about. And I'm happy you brought him up because most people see he's the second most important person in the book. I think so. I think he's a really strong figure in the book. He, he kind of holds he's, – he's kind of almost like the glue in some ways because he's there when you – you know, when you play for Blue Star, when you play for Celtic Boys Club, and then there's a moment where he's sitting in the office with John Neal, <laughs> and you're like, what life. are you doing it? <laughs> you know, there's that great moment, and then the great stories about the travel. And, and, and I think my the, the most poignant moment for me is when you hand him the Scotland shirt in the plastic bag, and, you know, it's, you, you're from Glasgow, so you can't be kind of, you can't be slushy about it. And it's like, well, you better look after that then. And it's, it's obviously such a, a massive moment for you both. And it's just lovely. It's beautifully expressed. Do you know, the people have a sense generation absolutely understand that concept that you know that you don't have to say all the big flowery words sometimes in the moment it's a gesture it's a, the way you catch each other's eyes it's just an understanding a nod uh, and i kind of love that as much as anything i think there's there is a lot of fakery people say, wow i love you kind of thing you know you've only met you 20 minutes ago <laughs> you know and it's whereas that depth, you know, it takes a lot more than that to get there. By the way, can I underline when I was saying he's the second most important person in the book, uh, important character in the book, 
do realise, I mean, the dog is more important. <laughs> oh, Shandy, yeah. <laughs> the amount of people that have asked yeah. me about the dog since I wrote about the book, we had this dog called Shandy, and he made me a better footballer because um, he come running with me. I was a distance runner as well, and I would run 14, 15 miles just for fun, and the dog would run, just run with me out towards the, the countryside, etc., and run for two or three, something, four hours, whatever, it didn't matter. Um, but also then would just play football with me. So if I had no one to play football with, I'd get a ball, Shandy would come, and he'd just try and get the ball off me for an hour, you know, and he never fell for dummies because he just watched the ball and he was desperate to get this ball. So he made me a better footballer. <laughs> so I was growing up this dog who's brilliant, but he also was massively intelligent. And we used to go in mass every morning with my mum. And he knew when he kneel down and stand up and <laughs> it's hilarious. But I was going into college one day I was for my degree in my first year. And uh, he used to walk my dad down to the train station in the morning. And it's a 20-minute walk across about five busy roads. And then walk back to get us. We'd get up, have a breakfast. I'd walk down to the train station again, Shettleston, and, you know, to get on the train. And he'd walk me down. And anyway, this day he decided to get on the train, but not on my train, on the train going the other way. So he's gone all the way up. And I thought, oh my God, we've lost him. I, this dog I absolutely adore. And I've got an Italian and I've phoned up my mum, dialed up the, put the 10p or whatever it was and said, my mum, Chanty's lost. It's a nightmare. He's got on the train. He's went the wrong way. It's a nightmare. If he went the other way, he might have found his way home. But she goes, shh. I went, no, no, you don't understand. He's lost. And she said, you don't understand. He's sitting beside me. Amazing. He's <laughs> just such a mass- massively intelligent. And on it, I'll be honest with you, talking about editing, I probably took about 2,000 words of Shandy out. Oh, did you? You went over the top so on Shandy. Many, there were so many other stories <laughs> about Shandy. And, you know, I'm kind of a wee bit gutted because the amount of people have said, could you not put even more in about Shandy? <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe, <laughs> there's a, a maybe there's a Shandy and me kind of like <laughs> sub book coming out of it, definitely. Uh, and, and the whole family, because every member of the family's got similar stories about the dog. But we've, again, that's we've all, a lot of us grew up with pets that were important. And, you know, I think that's still something to say. You know, we, we talk about people in our life, but hey, sometimes those pets are kind of have friends and helpful too. Chandy was specifically helpful. He actually made, as I say, me a better football. I would hazard to say that the third most important person in the book or figure in the book um, is, is John Neal. Um, your kind of admiration and bond and chemistry with John Neal comes across really strongly as a manager. Because I mean, there are managers that you don't, get on with particularly well trainers you don't get on with particularly well uh you know uh i mean there's an interesting section with uh, john hollins and early wally where you mm-hmm. make it very clear that it's not a happy time for you but john neil and you seem to click almost straight away and you know for for all chelsea fans that was a good thing because it was the start of a of a great period of you playing amazingly well at chelsea and giving us so much joy yeah it's I, see, I couldn't understand early on if, why a manager wouldn't understand me. You know, okay, so I'm an outsider. Okay, I don't seem to be doing what everyone else is doing. But as long as what I'm doing in the pitch, and by the way, what I'm doing in training, and the fact that I'm doing more training than anyone else, and I'm going out running in the afternoon, and I'm going back and I'm doing training myself without telling anyone at the club. You know, I used to sneak back to Stanford Bridge in the afternoons and train on the pitch myself. And sometimes take one of the youth players with him. John Neal would see this now and again and just think, do you know what? I don't need to worry about him. His attitude's all right. And I can never remember him ever shouting at me once. Because he knew if I'd done something, I was doing it for the right reasons. Um, and to see if someone with that sort of wisdom just got it, absolutely just got it. You need a level of wisdom to get that. Because remember, he's got 20 or 30 other people he's trying to understand as well. Mm. And to some degrees, maybe I was the trickiest one to understand from the outside because I didn't give that much away. But he got it. And he just said, no, leave that. There's a great moment really early in my career at Chelsea. when I'm just a kid. I mean, some people will remember when I started and I was so skinny and it's a small wee guy. They thought I was a youth player. And uh, he just said to the team, oh, by the way, at the end of the the, the, the team talk it was, um, and by the way and if you get part of the ball you'll win and I was like they're all looking around going what 
it's like and his belief that I could take this. So the understanding was there, and his no, 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 not belief, his knowledge that I could cope with that. That's that's quite good knowledge of because you look at modern young sports person, they're all talking about resilience, they're all talking about coping with stress and pressure. That to a lot of people would be a horrible pressure, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yet he immediately knew, no, he'll like that. And that seemed an easy thing to say. That's actually a big, big thing to do to a kid. And a, and a kid, no more than that. So immediately I had a, a fabulous bond. He was also intelligent, no nonsense, straight up and down. If someone tried to pull the wool over his eyes, he didn't play along with it. He just told them in his northern accent, you know, home truths. I think I thought him almost as a bit of a Jeeves, you know, don't try and pull the wool. He's more intelligent than most of you. Don't even try it, mate. Um, but he was a good man. He had a great understanding with Ian McNeil. And we've lost them both now. Um, there's, there were a couple of stories which I, I, I wrote and then took them out again because they have to go in the second book because of the time frame. Um, but my final meeting with John was, uh, was very moving. If you, I, I can share it with you if you don't mind. Um, was the last time I've seen John. Um, I'd been told, uh, you know, his memory had gone really. He didn't have much left. And I thought, I still need to see this man for we lose him. So I got in my car one day, just jumped in my car and drove. Um, it was four and a half hour drive to where I lived, to where John lived in North Wales. Got there. I'd phoned via his son to uh, his partner and she was waiting at the door and she says, thanks very much for coming. And I've gone in expecting to see him, you know, very much in a, a reduced state. He looked absolutely brilliant. <laughs> he looked exactly the same. He, was, he looked physically amazingly well, but his memory had gone. And I walked in, I said, hello, I'm Pat. And she was delighted to come, but clearly had no memory of me at all. And that's a hard thing for anyone. People who've lost parents to, you know, these difficult dementias and things, they will understand the pain of this. Um, but I said, I don't care. This man was important. That is still the same person I was. So I sat there talking. And bits of things he would remember and not, but he wasn't affected by it. He was upset by it. He would just chat away. And he seemed quite happy. And he was trying to, that classic thing they do where they try to pretend they know what's going on. And anyway, a good hour passed. And anyway, he looks like he's getting a little bit tired. So I said, I better go now. And she was really happy that I'd come down to see him. And as I walked out, stood by his door. And he looked at me, straight in my eyes. And then he looked past me, just past my shoulder. And then he looked at me again, just past my shoulder again. And I was standing in the hallway, the door's a yard away. And I'm thinking, what's going on? And I looked behind me, and there's a photo on the wall. And it's me, playing. And he just looked at me, and a light went off, and he went, wee pat, and pointed Amazing. at me. And honestly, I... I had to hold back the tears so much. Moments later, I'd gone. By the time I was in my car waving, I could see the head faded again. But that spark, that head sparked for that moment. And it was just because, and I looked around, I didn't see anybody else's picture. He loved Mickey Thomas, he loved Joey Jones, he loved other people. He loved me. There happened to be a picture of me behind him. Amazing. What a great honestly, story. The most, and I, I drove back, so it was a bit. Nine and a half, ten hours in the end, all in. Uh, and what a great nine and a half hours for that two seconds. And it was joyous. And I'm so happy I did it. And then, I, and then he died not too long after that. Um, and I, I only have happy memories of John. Uh, I'm just like many people, the book does deal with, you know, when he had to stop after his heart problem. Um, and a lot of people have written about it before, but I, I would hope my perspective is probably a little bit different from most. I think I think yes, it's very heartfelt. The, the kind of the, the sort of slight the the other kind of major managerial figure for you was Jock Steen, mm. and there's a moment in the book where you're playing against Spain, I think, <laughs> um, in uh, in in Spain, and he comes into the dressing room and tears you off a strip in front of everybody for what seems like hours about how terrible you've been and selfish and. Um, and and you took it as a as a challenge and went out and played brilliantly in the second half and it all turned out to be a huge test for you. 
and and that's the other kind of style of management really you know this this kind of if i poke you it will it will make you perform is it is that something you react well, to he, generally he, he was he wasn't trying to get me to perform as in, you know the hairdryer no he just wanted to find out if i had the gumption to stand up because i would you you're going to get pressure and if he's going to stick me in the national team he wanted to find out if some Mexican's going to headbutt me. Can I cope with that? You know? <laughs> and by the way, I'm not just saying that against Mexicans. A Mexican did headbutt me once. And again, that's in the book. And he wanted to know if this kind of fey, indie wee guy who would wear a berry now and again, you know, would stand up. And he, he got the right answer. And he, I didn't know that. It took me a while. And that's one of the reasons why I was so amazed by Jobstein. Because I'd, I'd learned a lot. I'd met him a few times. We'd gone through the youth development. He'd met up with me a few times. And he's one of these people, I've met a few in my life. You, you learn almost nothing when you ask them a question. Nothing. Because they're spending the entire time probing you. They're finding out about you. Their interest is everything about you. And it's kind of unusual, particularly in football, because everybody asks you about yourself. And you end up having to talk about yourself. See somebody that's doing that and probing you like an analyst would do, but then using it for the good of the group. It's, it's kind of a special, special thing. Um, so I was very impressed with him. And technically and tactically, he was a fantastic coach as well. Um, and I, to be honest, I do talk about him in a bit because I learned a lot about him, not just from my own dealings with him, but from talking to other people and their dealings with him as well. Of the Chelsea managers that have come in the sort of contemporary period is there anybody that you would have liked to have played under um quite a lot of them right Mourinho <laughs> Mourinho I don't think he would have I'd have been his type I'm not sure I would have been um he'd have liked work rate but I think in a similar way that Juan Mata wasn't really a Mourinho player I was going to say that's that's probably the closest parallel isn't it really yeah, you know I, I'm not sure um, not even, you know, I was probably much more hardworking a player. I mean, I wouldn't put myself above Eden Hazard in anything, but I was probably harder working than Eden. <laughs> so I really was a hardworking player too. So that side, Mourinho would, Mourinho would have liked. But people like Carlo, you know, yeah, absolutely fine. Um, it would have been great to work under those people. But I'll be honest with you, you never know until you work under somebody. You never fully know until you get Because to it's the chemistry. Yeah. I mean, I've met... I met Thomas uh, on Champions League night. I've just after met won the Champions League over in uh, Porto, and I get dragged down to the the players' party. Yeah, that was really tough getting dragged into the players' bar party. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Thomas came over and talked to me for about fifteen minutes. You wow! Know, thinking, Did he know you were? He was. He was invited over by Jane, who works at the club. Who said right. this is Pat? He used to play for the club. And he was fabulous. He was absolutely fabulous. He, he was really interesting person. And from that 10, 15 minutes, I thought, yeah, I'd have, he'd have been brilliant to work under because he's just unbelievably honest. And if you're right with him, he will back you and he will be trying to get the best out of you. And the fact that he does one thing, he takes players and improves them. Honestly, if you'd have said to me, Thomas is going to come in and he's going to make N'Golo County better, I'd have said, you can't do that. <laughs> but he has. And goal's even better than he was. I didn't know it was possible, but he has. And I, I watch, he's made a number of players better. And I'd have loved anyone to give me any information to improve. I'll, I'll tell you, I've asked an interesting question there because throughout my career, very few managers ever give me any information to help me. Really? Very few. Mm. You know, I basically got by in what I knew and what I'd learned myself. Um, very few gave me hints or tips or ideas that changed me for the better. Um, that's that's how poor some management was. And you know, we say poor. You know, they put a team together, they shout and ball now and again. And that's why maybe John Neal and after him, Colin Harvey, they were two that I just thought, yeah, at least you're saying a couple of things that I can take home, cogitate on, and maybe you know reconsider. 
a couple of things. Do you think that's a, a consequence and, and, and a good thing about the sort of professionalism of football in the 21st century? You know, there's lots of things that we could probably rail against, both of us, uh, what, you know, the, some of the joy that's been sucked out of the game in some ways. But, you know, but this professionalism, this, this analysis, this constant quest for improvement and betterment, is that a good thing for you? Or do you still stick oh, that, to the flair is flair? And, no, you know, there's downsides to it too. There's downsides to it too. I mean, People are better talking about it now. <laughs> People are better saying the right words. And uh, as soon as anyone says the phrase, oh, we, we put on a low block, I just go, oh, for God's sake. Because it's just jargon. You just stuck everyone behind the ball, you mean? <laughs> it, 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 there's a lot of jargon going on just now. And it's it trying to blind you with science. We have a lot of stuff that's not particularly complex. Um, we've done plenty of that stuff from, you know, 20, 30 years before with, without making a big song and dance about it. So there is a lot of smoke and mirrors going on at the moment, a lot of managers. Um, but it's, I would suggest that there is a lot more effort put in by some of the managers. But there's some of them are just, some of them are great. I don't think they're absolutely great. They, they do, they're okay, but they're falling into the right job at the right time and it's worked for them. Um, what about those then, people that are seen as proper rev? I mean, what, what's your view, for example, on Pep? You know, Pep's seen as a, as, a, as a revolutionary in management, you know, in terms of how he approaches the game and, and thinks about the game. Do you buy into that? I think after Cruyff, he's probably the biggest I've seen in world football, changing it. Um, you know, Steen did his bit and others did their bit, and, you know, but watching the way the game was adapted from what it was, uh, and I would say Pep's changed English football more than any other person I've ever seen my life uh, you know look at it now can you, if you if, in simplest terms what he did at Barcelona is he's really perfected something that was going in an interesting direction but for a period of time I think he put again together the best football team I've ever seen and that probably even beats the Brazil 17 there was a period there when Xavi and Iniesta Messi and, and the way they were playing it was it was unthinkable in comparison to anything else and I, I studied it so much to try and understand what he was doing He's also adapted it as he's gone along. Now, in the midst of it all, he's made a lot of mistakes. He made a big, giant mistake in Porto, which I was delighted about, (laughs) which is great. So he's not a a genius that can't err. He can err. But if you have a look at it now and look at how many teams are trying to play out for the back, because they now understand if you hit the ball wrong, you lose it. It's not complicated that bit, but he understands that you try and make your team good enough to be able to do this, and it has effects. You look at the way that a lot more teams now are trying to adapt tactics in a different way. I mean, I played football uh, in periods that felt like the dark ages. Um, well, a lot of teams just playing long ball football because that was the English way. The rest of the world wasn't playing that way. The rest of the world, we were all just laughing at the English. And I'm sorry about that. I'm not anti-English in any way, but it was a bit rubbish. And even the start of the Premier League, I thought it was dreadful. <laughs> I wouldn't watch it. I just thought it was awful. Um, the only good the players that were technically good were ones that we bought in. But Pep and a number of other people have changed that. Um, have a look at how many number 10s we are developing. I say we. <laughs> how many number 10s have been de- developed, particularly in England. But in the UK, but particularly. There's Grealishes now. They weren't Grealishes for 10 years. There's Mason Mounts now. You know, there's Bodens now. There's, there is actually, you look at the England team, you take the first six or seven of those attack-minded creative players out, there's probably another six or seven you can stick in. Mm. That wasn't there 10 years ago. Because, but you could get lots of big, hefty centre-forwards that go and you can go and chase a ball. So I'm delighted that Pep was a massive part of that, and he was a massive part of that. And, you know, I would put him up there as you know, one of the greats. Now, he's not perfect, and he makes big mistakes, and it's sometimes my job, and my, and my job as a pundit with Radio 5 Live and just TV, etc., to say, I know you're Pep. You blew it up, mate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you blew it big time in Porto. Absolutely, the kids. You retired in 2000. You went from Chelsea to Everton, where you had some fun times, and then Tranmere and Kilmarnock and Motherwell, I think, and then and then retired in, in 2000, finally. So you've been out the game for 20 years now. And you say very clearly, I don't miss, I don't regret not having the fame, the money, the cars, the, you know, I don't regret any of that. Do you regret anything about the current era that you, you would have liked to have experienced as a player? Not necessarily material, but, you know, as a player, would you have liked to have played on those pitches? Would you have liked to have played in this Champions League format? Would you have liked to, all this stuff, what would you, what, what would you like to have done in the current era? The Champions League format 
fine, yeah, maybe. Um, but yeah, the pitches, the actual physical pitches would have been interesting to not have to run across ploughed fields a lot of the time. People saying, why is he not playing well? And I think, well, you try and do that potato field, run with the ball. There's a great, uh, something made me very happy a little while back, and it shouldn't have done, but it did. Um, Man City were playing against uh, Spurs at uh, Wembley a few years back. And Man City were at the very best playing their tick attack of football. But Spurs were, I daren't say it, but they were quite a good team then, right? <laughs> Not as good as us, but they were a good team. <laughs> we'll, right? we'll edit that bit out. Right, okay. But they were, they were a decent team. They were on good form, right? And I thought, we'll watch this. It's going to be a great game, interesting, uh, technical game as well. And then I realised the NFL had had a game the night before and there had been a downpour and the pitch was mush. And it was the pitches we played on. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm, this is it. This is what I've been waiting to see. Can these modern players, like my modern hero of the game is David Silva, it's the, the player who I relate to most, just as purely playing style, he's closest to my style. And I think, well, I want to see this. He couldn't do it. He absolutely couldn't do it. And there was a real moment of, do you know what, the amount of people that say, uh, they're different now, they play a different game now. Yes, there's a reason for that. The number of reasons for that, and one of them is that billiard table of a pitch. So that's one thing, definitely. The other thing is, again, back to Pep and people like that. In my time, if you looked at me and with my physique, basically just to go and stand out in the wing, you know, and, and that happened to me at Chelsea. I'd never played in the wing before Chelsea, uh, but just go and stand out in the wing. And I'm going, I'm not winger. I'm a 10 or I'm a striker one of two or I'm a bit deeper in my field and I'm a small standout in the wing so I had to relearn I played wing sometimes but it was not my position nowhere near it but if you look at it now and it's the Javis and Yesters and Silvas and Matas and you know they, they, they're not told to stand out in the wing they're understood that they can actually be part of something much more complex and I was able to do that at international level in Scotland where I was able to but in, in English football, at the time when I played, we played a 4-3-3 or a 4-4-2. The thing I would like now, I'd like to have played in a, a type, types of systems that allowed me to be creative in more areas. Um, so do I want all the money? Nah, I couldn't care less. Would I have liked the style of some of it? Yeah, I'd have gone for that. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Let, let's finish up by talking about I know something that's that's very close to your heart. The you know the the state of football, well, societal football approaches to to you know to to, to the big issues, things like for I want I'm very interested to know what your position is on taking the knee on 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 all this kind of stuff at the moment. Were you heartened by the players' reaction to that? Because there's quite a lot in in your book about how you are making a lone stand. Mm. I mean, there's a lovely moment after Paul Canneville is abused that you and Kerry Dixon escort him out onto the pitch and the fans are singing his name. So you clearly weren't alone, but you were having to make a a big stand about this. Now it seems that there's a certain unity amongst players. Mm. You've got a situation with Alonso doing something slightly different now. I guess that's his choice. But, you know, it's it. what's your view, general view on it and how positive is it and how, how, um, how optimistic are you moving forward given the times that we live in well I'm not prescriptive about taking the knee um, I kind of like the fact that football you know got behind it and said this is, means a lot to us and, and the statement was made for good time for as much as a year um, if others decide to take a different angle or don't take the knee or just stand there I don't have a problem with that it, see if it becomes prescriptive and you're only doing it because everyone else is doing it that's pointless that's utterly pointless I don't want that that's just fakery. Um, what we'd like, if it means, if you buy into it and feel that taking knee is important, do that. If you make a point to people, there is another way that you want to do it, be you Zaha, be you Marcus Alonso, be you anyone, you make it that way. That's fine. That's absolutely fine. One of the worst things, and I'll, I'll be honest, I've come across people in the game when I play, and since, that are involved in the game to some level, who are, quite a bit racist and to be honest you don't know I do you don't know because they're doing all that faking 
I don't want that fake. I don't want people doing that. I have no time for that at all. So the more power comes from people who care and do the right things or do the things that they believe in. So good on you. You've taken me. Uh, simple terms, if it was at the moment, I would probably would be, I would still be doing it. Yeah, I would be. But I wouldn't be turning around having a moan at anybody who wasn't. Absolutely not. It's, a, it's not a prescriptive thing. And I feel unusually strongly about that. Um, I think we've come a long way. I think there's, but we just don't give up on it. We just want equality for everyone. Um, and, and it is equality. It's nothing, it's nothing different from that. It's just equality. And yeah, you know, it's just been a, a major passion of my life and it continues to be a major passion in my life. Um, and there, that gets messy. It shouldn't get messy, but it gets messy when you start noodling about in, in the kind of margins of it, of, oh, this means that, this means this, this means that. It's quite simple to everyone the same. You know, and I, I can very comfortably, hopefully, be, be like that. Um, and if I say something that then people want to take offence at, which does not really happen, but if I did, I would say that's your problem, mate, because I just treat everyone exactly the same. Amazing. One last question. Can Chelsea win the league this year? Yeah. <laughs> and I never say this. I never, ever say that. Now, that sounds like a simple thing, right? Because oh, I love Chelsea and I would say that. No, I don't. I never say it. Because, you know, there's, you know, there's a team you want to win it and you also don't want to be biased or over-biased. And also, there's been times I've just thought, no, and maybe not the best this year. You know, maybe there's a better team than us. I'm horribly honest. And I need to be from other job, but I am anyway. I want Chelsea to win the league every year, but I don't absolutely believe it. Do I think right now, or even before the start of the season, absolutely, I would say we are joint favourites. I honestly do. I, and it's it's a joy to see it. And I, I think the, the way we're playing, I think this tweak, which I kind of suspected was going to come, I could see bits of it last season, what Thomas was trying to do. He's won the Champions League. And I'm thinking, you're not playing the system you want to play, are you? I could, I could see it. I could Because a couple of times he did tweak it, didn't he? And then against Spurs, uh, it really jumped out. And he, he went for the 3-5-2 instead of the 3-4-2-1. It's a gigantic change. Um, but when it was in place, I, what I always do, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting trick. It's hard to do if you support a team. You're watching your team play, right? Try this trick. Imagine what it's like to play against them, right? really trying hard to say, right, okay, and I, I can see the strengths of the other team, you're worried about them, but they say, no, no, what if I'm playing against that? Oh, my God. You've got Jorginho, Kante and Kova in the midfield. <laughs> There's no, you're going to struggle to get a kick, right? That's brilliant. That's unbelievable. Because I've, all Chelsea fans haven't agreed with me, but two players I have always, always championed from day one, Rudiger and Jorginho. I have loved them from day one. I'm, I've been on my own a lot of the time, but I've never changed my mind on them. Jorginho, I, I think he's just a genius. He just controls games, right? Fabulous, right? And also, Rudiger, I've yet to see anybody beat him. He's been here a long time. Still not seen anybody go by him, right? He's made mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes. Still not ready. Nobody one on one has got the ball and went by him. That's extraordinary, right? So that's amazing, right? So, but you look at it. So you've got this three in the midfield. And then you've got that back line where it kind of doesn't matter what three of six you choose. It really doesn't. And I'm talking about players. I think Tony has to be there. In the big games, Tony has to be there. But apart from that, it's brilliant. It's absolutely phenomenal. We haven't got a player now where if you lose him, you go, oh my God, we've lost so-and-so. Now, a lot of people might say it's, uh, it's Romero Lukaku now. And I don't even think it is. I think we adapt to enough to be able to do that. Well, we showed that by winning the Champions League with them, for goodness sake. So you stick that all together and you think, of course you can win the league. Because <laughs> I'm putting myself in other people's position and thinking, oh no, I wouldn't want to play against that. And so, yeah, I'm not saying we are going to, but it absolutely we are good enough. And I, I would put us City and ourselves Liverpool just behind, but I don't know if they get a big enough squad and United are a wee distance behind that. Amazing. Pat, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, thank you for your book, The Accidental Footballer, available in all good bookstores can, now. Can, can I also say very quickly, to sure. anyone who has bought it, um, thank you. 
And I really hope you enjoyed it because it wasn't done to make money or anything like that. It was done because I wanted you to enjoy it. Um, and anyone who hasn't and does get around to reading it, I really, really hope you enjoy it because uh, there's quite a bit of fun in there as well. Well, yeah, I'm going to be totally honest with you. I loved it. And I'm not just saying it because you're there. I really enjoyed it. I said to you at the very beginning, I don't really like football books um, because they're too formulaic. It's a really interesting, heartfelt, authentic book about your life and your experiences. And, and I really, really enjoyed it. So thank you for writing it. And uh, I urge anybody to go and, and get it. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much. And I, I hope we can speak again soon when you put out volume two. I absolutely look forward to it. And uh, everyone out there, keep the blue flag flying high. <laughs> keep, it, keep it flying high. Thanks, Pat. If you want to advertise on or sponsor this show, check us out at playbackmedia.co.uk. Sports Social Podcast Network.